Gotta get gotta get some of that mountain ops ignite in my system before I get this interview going with good buddy of mine, Ruben Alexson. Uh, any of you that know who he is knows that he's from Vortex Optics. He's an awesome competition shooter. I remember seeing this guy shoot competition years ago for the first time, and we kind of chatted a little bit. And next thing I know, he's sitting there like battling with me and then taking over. I'm like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have taught this guy anything. I shouldn't have said anything to him because now he's just so dang good. So, uh, Ruben Allison, thank you so much for being on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Dude, I'm super pumped to chat with you and, uh, you know, get to talk about life and shooting and whatever else we talk about, man. Yeah, so you know, there's, um, you know, obviously, if anyone that's listened to the podcast before uh, knows that I've just gotten into hunting, and one of the things that you know, f- transitioning from not transitioning because I'm not you know going just like I'm quitting competition to go hunting, but kind of bringing a new part of that into my life. It was so funny that my focus on Vortex Optics, for example, was just so solely on competition shooting. So that's all the gear I was looking at. And then when the world of hunting came in, I was like, oh, my gosh, I've got awesome binoculars to go hunting with. I've got awesome. I've got a spotting scope like I can I can really go out and do hunting. now. Like it was so funny that my my focus was so fully on just the competition world that once the hunting world opened up and I and I got to assume it's the same with like law enforcement too, like to know and see the applications that these these optics can do so um and I, it was just really cool to be able to have the relationship i do with you and with vortex optics to to when when hunting opened up for me that i was like oh my gosh like i've got all this great gear already that is specifically catered to to do stuff like this so well yeah um, and if, if you had you know you were using razor one to six psd one to six you know razor one to ten like some other stuff obviously too and then you get into the hunting side and you're like, oh, man, there's way more options over here. Yeah. Well, I remember it was the funniest thing when I the first time I went to SHOT Show and my world is competition shooting. I had a conversation with someone. And I told him, I was like, oh, my God, I just got a chance to go see my, uh, and meet Rob Latham. And they were like, who? Like, you don't know yeah. who Rob Latham is? Like, it was just so funny how small our world is. We make it our world. So it, it's yeah. everywhere that we think and do and breathe. But then when you actually get out in the big world, you're like, oh, we're we're a small fish in a really big pond. So now as far as hunting goes, because I know you do quite a bit of it here in the U.S. Have you ever done anything abroad? No, not internationally. I I guess the the only like international um, type of like outdoors stuff that I've done would be like fishing Canada. Um, Came close. I mean, like to. Uh, I, I hunted in West Texas, you know, three or four miles from the Mexico border in 2022. Um, but no, nothing internationally. In fact, um, I don't know if I've even told you this. Uh, I'm going to go to Thailand for world shoot this fall. Nice. Okay. Is that, is that shotgun? Yeah. Shotgun world yeah, okay. shoot for, for Ipsic. Um, I'm going to be on the, the men's open team, I believe. Nice. Congratulations, man. That's uh you have to you have to let me know. Well, I'll I'll try and stay as as up to par with it as I can, but uh Yeah, no, I'm excited. Yeah. I know you you've traveled a lot internationally shooting and uh this will be my first time, so So I didn't I didn't go to World Shoot for Thailand um just because of all the politics that were still going on when they asked me yep. if I wanted my slot, but um I can say this, man. Uh, be careful what you eat. Be careful what you drink, because I heard war stories from Nils <laughs> and Jessica and Maggie and all of them about like food and 
it not agreeing with yeah. their body and stuff. So just take take plenty of emodium and tums yeah. and all that kind of stuff with you. Everybody was asking uh, about like getting VRBOs and if you can get VRBOs. And I was like, I don't know about you, but like I'm going to stay in the most like plain resort possible that has all the food I'm used to. Um, <laughs> I'm not interested in going to a grocery store and trying to figure out what to buy. Yeah, you know, uh, now I think about it, but when we're, when we're done with the podcast, I'll probably get you the contact info for like Nils and Jessica and you yeah. can reach out to them and ask them like, hey, while you were there, what would you, where would you suggest I go? Where would you suggest maybe I stay away from? Like, because right. they were just there and they, I think they stayed there a couple of extra days to kind of vacation and stuff. So they'd be cool. Yeah, cool that'd be resource. super helpful. I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, I, so you're, so you're going to, to Ipsic Shotgun World, yep. world Shoot. Um, what you, so you're shooting open, which means you're going to be shooting some sort of box-fed magazine. I'm assuming it's a, a Dissident Arms? Yep, I'm going to be shooting a Dissident KL-12. Um, I believe the 16-inch. Um, and I'm um, looking forward to it. I had really good luck with uh, my previous Dissident that I had. Um, you know, really, really haven't had any issues to speak of. Just kind of learning a different platform. But now I'm comfortable and I've done well with the open shotgun. So I'm going to try and see where, uh, see where things kind of play out over there now have you have you done a lot of like uh shotgun only ipsic style matches where they've got the no shoots and the no like you have not. to almost be shooting like super tight patterns and no i'm you know i i'm not afraid of uh the tight pattern uh my you know do you remember so when we were shooting a lot of pcc stuff right like the lucas oil pcc match and and some of the other stuff like i i was shooting obviously pcc nine millimeter um with a dot and and then i started doing more training uh after that probably like 2016 17 i started doing some more training with um with some you know like guys like steve anderson you know reading the the lanny bassam stuff and um in my head like what i learned about myself was that simpler simpler is better and so i was you know initially with shotgun stuff i was trying out like different, you know, maybe like a circle dot reticle or shooting like a UH-1 on the shotgun to see like, oh, well, a round, a round reticle, you know, is like shotgun pattern. And kind of what I learned was like, it takes longer for my brain to process close enough or, or like, um, maybe the best way to put it would be like having a, a point of aim where it's on the target is the easiest for me as opposed to like how far does the dot need to be off the target. Mm. And so what I've done almost exclusively for the last about three years on my shotgun has been just to run a, an extra full choke. And it, you know, it, it can be a little trickier on some of the like flying clay targets, but in my head, the way I see it, it's the same way I shoot the offset dot on a rifle. It's the same way I shoot a PCC with the red dot and the same way I shoot my pistol with the red dot is the dot needs to be where I want the, the round to go. And so I shoot my shotgun the same way. And so I'm not necessarily super worried about tight no shoots because I've been shooting almost exclusively an extra full choke in that shotgun for three years. And so, yeah, I mean, there's obviously gaming stuff with the, with the Ipsic game that are going to be, you know, some learning points. I know some of the other open, uh, the open team guys and I are going to get together a few times this summer. Um, and so, you know, maybe learn the game a little bit, but I don't think that, I don't think for me, it's like, you know, going to a match like this isn't like, okay, now it's time to learn shotgun. It's like, I know how to shoot shotgun. Now I just need to tweak it and learn some of the gaming aspects. Because if you're, 
deciding to go to a match like this and then deciding, oh, I should probably learn the gun, you're probably taking it in the wrong order. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm super excited. Um, I know I know I've got a pretty, I guess maybe second half of the summer leading up to December, I've got a pretty in-depth training schedule kind of built out. I've been uh, getting some, you know, some range accesses close to my house so that I can uh, put more time in after work, you know, practicing and stuff. But I think the biggest thing will just be learning the game. You know, it's not necessarily shooting the shotgun. It's just going to be learning the game. Well, you know, learn, learn those 10 round mags um, and, and how the, how the scoring system works, the different start positions, stuff like that. But I'm really excited and, uh, you know, going back to all shotgun matches, you know, I, I was born and raised in Minnesota and we have, you know, a pretty rich culture, rich heritage of waterfowl hunting, upland game hunting, you know, pheasants, uh, ducks, geese, stuff like that. And so I've, I've shot, um, a lot of just shotgun matches years ago, you know, more so than now. Um, we used to have a thing called the Nordic tactical shotgun championship. Um, I remember that. Yeah. Match, you know, we get the, you know, the Noveski team would show up, Jesse Tischhauser would show up, people like that. And so, uh, yeah, I would, I would shoot the one in, in Minnesota. And then there was a couple, um, one down, down, uh, I want to say in Missouri and then one in, uh, at Pikes Peak, uh, gun range in, in Colorado. And so I've shot those and I really, I really enjoyed, uh, shotgun only matches. I think it is kind of one of the things where, Maybe now in three gun, we're hearing more about like more about two gun because people don't want to learn a shotgun. But like for me, it's like shotgun has always been one of my favorite parts of the, of the sport. And so, um, you know, it's not a foreign concept to me. I've done it enough and, and I, I'd like shooting a shotgun. I think maybe uh, my additional bulk on my body lends me to controlling recoil a little bit better. Uh, so, you know, you've got to play your strengths. Uh, so... <laughs> No, I'm, I'm excited. It's going to be a learning experience, but it's going to be a good one. Now, do you know, because like in, in the Ipsic world for a pistol, you know, like your your make ready is a load the gun and go. There is no, you can't take a sight picture. You can't do a dry fire. Even with a red dot, like you can't aim the dot at a target. You have to aim it at the ground. Is shotgun the same way where it's pretty much once you say make ready, like only thing you can do is check to make sure your dot's on. And then after that, you have to load the magazine. Right? Like a dry fire is a warning and then every time you dry fire after that becomes a procedural sure. in, in USP or in IPSC for, for a handgun. So do you well, know? Those are, those are the parts of the game that I'm going to work really closely with Scott Green and Mike and Lan um, on, you know, just uh, some of the other guys I'll be shooting with uh, to learn that. I'm not entirely even sure about that make ready process. But again, um, that'll be the things that I need to focus on this year is learning those differences in the game uh, because I'm comfortable shooting the gun. I just need to learn all of the the rules mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, see, so for me, with the, when I was first time, the first time I was going to world shoot in France, I um, I made it a point that yeah, for like six months prior to going, every make ready that I did was an Ipsic make ready, which is just a since I was shooting a single stack, it was make ready, grab the gun, insert the mag, rack it, put it back, and then yeah, let's go. Like there was no, you know, two minute long grand grandmaster make ready. I'm gonna cock the hammer and do four dry fires and stuff yeah. like I didn't do any of that and and it was funny because like when I was going through that um, I would see other people that I knew were going to world shoot uh, come to matches and they they would say like I'm going to practice I'm going to practice for, for Ipsic I'm gonna practice. and then yeah. they'd say make ready and they'd draw their gun they point it at a target they'd rack the slide they'd do a dry fire and I'm like that's a warning and they'd be like what? I'm like that was a warning 
you yeah. said you wanted to train for Ipsic, so let's do it. And yeah, and I actually found that um, I I do the Ipsic make ready even to the to this day because like there were I can't tell you how many times like in the moment you know at a major match or whatever I'd say make ready and I would go and I'd rack the gun and I'd bring the gun up to a target and I would like flinch on the trigger pull and right then and there was like your anxiety level skyrockets because you just did something you're like oh my god no i i I gotta fix that and you're like well you're on the firing line you're about to go you can't you ain't fixing it in the next 30 seconds like that's a mental thing or that was something that was supposed to be done months ago so for me whenever i do my make readies now it's just like look i'm already amped up i'm already ready to get the stage going why do i want to keep amping myself up by you know adding more time before right. I can get started, for me mentally. Not saying that it's not right for everybody to, to take their time and, and do their make readies, but for me, I, I actually just found, I was like, you know what? I'm either ready to shoot the stage or I'm not, and if I'm not, then I need to step off the firing line and say, hey, I'm not ready, can you put me down a few times, yeah. you know, or whatever, or I should have been ready at this point, so um, my it's typical, funny that that... Yeah, my typical make ready, like, obviously, um, you know, if I'm, I've gotten into shooting a little bit of PRS, and so there's, I have a little bit more, like, I'm not quite sure the magnification the scope's going to be on, but like having shot three guns since, you know, realistically, like consistently and, and a lot for at least 10 or 11 years. Um, I know what magnification my rifle has to be on. I, you know, if, if we're talking about shooting a red dot, like if, if the brightness, if we're shooting all bays, right? Like the brightness doesn't change unless the sun changes. So like, I'm not going to sit there and adjust the dot brightness 10 or 11 times to try and find the just right setting because it might not even be the same as it's going to be when you're on the stage looking at a different angle or going into, you know, a jungle run. Now you have to shoot in the woods. Like it doesn't do you any good to adjust your brightness out in the sun. So I, I think like typically if I look at my make ready process, it's very simple. I step up, I throw a mag in, I check if the dots on, I rack the gun to make it ready and I go to low ready. Right. Like I'm not, or I holster, right. I'm not taking a bunch of time. I, I, I understand why people do it. Um, I've shot a lot more USBSA matches the last few years, you know, just making it a point to make it to open nationals, carry optics, nationals, two gun nationals and multi-gun nationals the last, um, several years. Uh, you see all types, right? I mean, you get on the line, uh, you know, at carry optics or open nationals and, there's some impressive make readies and I've never, <laughs> I've never been that. Cause that, you know what, John, like the thing is it doesn't help me. So why would I do it? And if I find something in there that like, that I don't, like you said, like you feel something weird about your trigger when you dry fire it. And it's like, now all of a sudden I'm thinking of that. Like, I don't need to be thinking of that. I need to be thinking of the, the array of targets where my reloads are you know, where my feet need to go when it's in a, you know, in a very sensitive spot on the stage to be positioned just right. I don't need to be thinking of anything other than just shooting the stage at that point in time, put the mag in the gun, make sure it loads at most of the time, don't even do a press check. So I don't foresee it being, um, too big of an issue to go to an IPSC make ready because Mm -hmm. I place very little importance on the make ready process. Yeah, no, yeah. and, and uh, I, I mean, I think you'll be squared away, especially if that's the way it is. Um, yeah, you're right, though. Some, sometimes you go to a match and you're just like, you see other people doing make readies and you're just like, oh, hold on, I'm going to go to the bathroom and then go get something to eat and then come back. And by then, maybe they'll be done shooting the stage. Cause you're like, now, now watch me go to Thailand and get a procedural on my first make ready. That's the way it'll happen. But 
Nah. Let's go. <laughs> nah, you'll be fine. Marion, you get a warning. You get a warning first, and then you get procedurals after that. So. Perfect. Um, and for the, for the for the pistol side, anyway, yeah, you've got a card that you have to carry around that shows, like, because you, you have to write in, like, okay, my pistol location is here. Here's my yep. mag pouch, mag pouch, mag pouch, magnet, or whatever. And then every stage, the ROs take your card, and they inspect your belt to make sure you haven't changed anything. Right. And then they have to sign off on it. And that card is actually where they would put... Okay, he's already, so like on stage two, you got a warning, so they tag that you've got a warning. So now when the RO at stage four sees you do something, they look and they go, "Oh, he was already given a warning." So now it's a procedural, and they start gotcha. acting that way. So, um, you know, it was funny. The first time I shot Ipsic, man, I I hated it because it was so difficult. It was so much more difficult than USPSA matches were. And then the more and more I practiced and trained and and worked on my proficiency and my consistency and my confidence, because that was the biggest thing that was lacking for me in the pistol world was, you know, I'd look at targets and still be afraid of them. Like, oh, my gosh, that's a that's a tuxedo target at 20 yards. That's a hard yeah. shot. Like, well, you've already lost the battle. Like, you're scared of that target already kind of thing. So once right. I worked on my confidence, every time I'd start going to Ipsic matches, I was like, man, this is fun. Like, this is so much more fun because it was like, I've been working my ass off to to develop my skill, and now I'm going to these matches where the skills are truly being tested at almost the the edge of what most people are comfortable with. I'm going to the same stages, being like, "No, I've I've practiced that target a ton. I practiced that yeah. target. I'm I'm good. You know, like no fear and, and kind of things." So. Um, I think that's the biggest thing I could say as far as transitioning into the Ipsic world, which it sounds like you're already doing because we've read a lot of the same books and we talked to a lot of the same people. So the mindsets and stuff is that that you already know what I'm talking about with the confidence of being able to say, you know, this is how I make that shot. You know, I can I know how to make that shot. I've made that shot before, you know, so you know how to do it. So, um no nah, man, I'm excited for you. I think I think you're gonna go over there and kill it. Uh, so who else is on the team with you then for Open? Do you know? Um, I won't make their announcement for them. Um, oh, okay. Just because it hasn't been uh, a, a lot of people aren't publicly announcing yet. Um, you know, and I don't okay. know yeah. necessarily. But uh, three other very good open shooters. Uh, okay. And I'm really excited to be on the team with them. So. Now, do you know what other what other divisions are being recognized? Because I, I I've never shot Ipsic shotgun, so obviously there's open, and then there's yeah. what is there like limited and modify or what are the well, so yeah, so uh, with within Ipsic you have standard, which would be kind of like what we would consider like a tac ops shotgun. Okay, so like a standard like Benelli M2 or something like that. Yep, and then okay. manual, so pump. Okay, and then modified, which would be like. Um, I guess the best way to kind of explain it would be like, uh, it's almost like kind of like Jerry shooting, right? Like a, a, a standard shotgun, but with a dot on it. And I believe they have a different capacity regulation too on there. So it's overall length of the gun. Um, mm. but yeah, you, you would look at it from a, um, from a, from a three gunner in the U S and you would say like, okay, that's like, that's kind of like a open shotgun but they didn't want to buy a really expensive open shotgun. Um, you know what I mean? So, so it's yeah. like a tube fed open shotgun. Tube fed. Yep. Yep. Okay. With a dot. So, and then full open is, as we know, just the high octane, bring what you can. And yep. Um, 10 round, 10 round mags though. Hmm. Yeah. That adds a different, that adds a different kind of spice to it. 
I don't want to. Yeah. Based on kind of what I've seen, you know, like, yeah, you're, you're, you're probably not doing too many flat footed reloads though. Right. Where where the arrays are uh, made in such a way that, you know, everybody shoots that match. Right. So everybody going, whether they be in manual or standard or modified or open, they're, we're all shooting the same match. So yeah, your, your arrays would kind of be like in USPSA, they kind of limit arrays so that the revolver and single stack shooters aren't completely screwed right yeah no that's true but yeah it'll just be a little bit different like i said uh, you know uh we were some of us were talking about multi-gun nationals in july like do we shoot that with 10 round mags just to get that pressure and and like a different environment like a match environment but i think they're actually going to be a couple of uh prep matches set up uh, late summer, early fall for people who are going to Thailand to get that flavor and to shoot. Um, so it'll be, uh, it'll be a learning experience. I'm looking forward to it. Cause if I'm being honest with myself, shotgun's probably my strongest part of my game. Not saying that it's that not saying that compared to other people, it's, it's a strong part of the game. But for me, that's the gun that I'm the most confident in and the most, um, you know, if I'm, if we're at a three gun match and there's an all shotgun stage, it's probably one that I'm uh, most comfortable in. And, and uh, you know, like we just shot Texas and I think, um, you know, John Waddell obviously crushed it and uh, on that all shotgun stage, but I think I was, I think I was a close second. So. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Cause I, I, I kind of agree with most people that say the shotgun's kind of a dumb gun. Uh, Nowadays, not so much, but before when, when three gun first, when I first got into three gun, it was kind of considered a dumb gun because like we were basically asking this gun to do something that it was never designed to do, which mm-hmm. is to shoot 38 rounds in under 20 seconds. Right. <laughs> right. And, and run flawlessly and, and low and all that kind of stuff. So You're not recoil too much. And, and yeah, exactly. like the gun was literally designed. Yeah. It, it was designed to blow birds out of the sky three at a time and then blow hinges off of doors. That's it. And then you're supposed to go to your real gun. Right. So. Um, nowadays the shotguns have gotten a lot better because so much more was, was demanded of them. I think a lot of the manufacturers were like, well, man, like if these guys want to run them in competition, like we got to beef things up, we got to work a little bit more on R and D and, and stuff like that. So I, I do think that, that shotguns have seen a huge improvement, especially in the box fed world for sure. But for the longest time I was like, God, the shotgun is so stupid. Why do I shoot it so well? Because I'm like you, like I, I, even though. Now, granted, I always had fun because I was considered one of the one of the faster guys that was able to do quad loads back in the day. So for me, it was it was a benefit to shoot the shotgun as much as I could because I knew that I had a bit of an advantage to people. Um, So it was I had this love hate relationship. I was like, gosh, like, uh, you know, I'm I'm running. a, a, I still have it. The the Taron Benelli M1 that he worked over with with a pistol grip, which is what everyone made fun of me for because I, I shot a pistol grip shotgun where everyone was like, you're so stupid. You can't even quad load with that. I was like, yeah, really? Watch me. <laughs> and and so I did it. But um, yeah, the thing just shot so flat and the recoil impulse felt so good and I was able to track it so well that I shot the gun really well, even though I was like, this is so stupid. Why am I having to shoot 32 rounds with this shotgun, like loading it and stuff? But it was one of those, like one of the guns that I felt the most comfortable with like rifle sorry when uh when you know when i would well we're me and adam maxwell used to travel to a lot of matches together uh you know 
we still do several matches a year together, but um, back in the day, being both from the same area of Minnesota and then traveling to out-of-state matches, we'd go to, I remember the first time I went to Ironman, I think it was, I think it was Adam's second Ironman out in Parma, Idaho, and it was my first, and we went out, and that was one of those matches where they'd let you choose, like, is do you want this to be a pistol target or do you want this to be a shotgun target, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, most of the time plate racks, falling steel, stuff like that. That was like your optional, um, you know, KO steel. And so it was like, well, me and Adam would, we, we were squatted with some guys one time. Um, and I remember, I remember looking at an array and being like, that's obviously a shotgun target. And the guys that we were with were from, uh, Vegas, California, like that shooting community. And they looked at, and they were like, no, that's obviously a pistol target. And so you know, agree to disagree. Okay. Like me and Adam were like, yeah, well, we're just going to do it our way. Like, we're, you know, maybe, maybe for them, that's a, maybe for them, that's a pistol target for us, shotgun target. Let's just kind of see how things shake out. And really what it boiled down to is like, we shot and they were like, oh yeah, that's obviously a shotgun target. And then they shot and we were like, oh, okay. I can see why for them it was a pistol target. Cause they were playing to their strengths. And mm-hmm. ultimately what it boiled down to was like, your split times on the shotgun in most cases on like farther, smaller KO steel were faster, but you had to keep the gun full. And so it was like, okay, I'm, I'm throwing, you know, 24 at a time into the pistol and I'm throwing four at a time into the shotgun. And, Mm -hmm. uh, that is one of the things I like about shooting open though, is being able to throw 20 at a time into the shotgun because it takes some of those decisions and, and makes like, uh, you know, specifically like we're down at superstition, this, this uh, spring and um, there is definitely some arrays that if you were shooting um, a tube fed division with your shotgun, it was definitely a pistol target. And if you're shooting uh, an open shotgun, it was definitely a shotgun target, but it allows you to play to your strengths and play to your equipment, which is one of those things about three gun that I do still really like is there's enough flexibility in it where you as a shooter might have a totally different skill set from the next guy, but you can play to your strengths and and make up some of those gaps. Yeah, and you know what? Like I'm I'm gonna be perfectly honest here. I miss Three Gun Nation. Not necessarily the organization, the way it was ran, but the the way the the stages were built and the rule set was made. Like that was yeah. probably some one of the funnest um, yeah. setups of just being yeah. like, yeah, I was like, here here's your stage. If a target is within this distance, you can't shoot it. Not because I'm setting a rule. It's because it's a safety issue, and you're going to get DQ'd for it. So, go have fun. If you if you want, you have to load your shotgun. If you want to run right past your shotgun and keep shooting your pistol, then go for it. But you have to load it. You know, it was like that thing of like you've got the yeah. option. The make ready has to be done the same for everyone. But how you shoot the stage is entirely up to you. Every target. I mean, even the paper targets were like. If you want to start with your shotgun and start throwing slugs in that thing and and send them at these targets, then cool, do it. That's up to yep. you, you know, kind of thing. But that that whole that whole era of three gun was so much fun, and I think that was obviously where we we started seeing um, the biggest amount of growth and the quickest uh, growth, you know, as far as the sport goes. And it's a damn shame that um, things went the way it did. Uh, not just with the organization, but even politically, because I think at the same time as when Sandy Hook happened, and that was like what tanked Three Gun Nation from the mainstream media, because it was on NBC yeah. Sports Network. Yep. They dropped him the very next day, and you know, but uh, the those matches were 
they were they were fun. I mean, I missed Dread them. Days. Yeah. So now, um, <clears throat> Multigun Nationals is coming up, which is going to be my. Well, it's not going to be my return because technically I'm shooting the Zombie in the Heartlands match here oh, in Grand yeah. Island in a couple of weeks. So I am making a return to three guns. So for those of you that have been wondering when it's happening, it's now. Um, and, for, and probably no one, no one cares. But um, as far as the three gun stuff goes, do you feel like like how do you feel the world of three gun is sitting health wise right now? Because we've, we've seen the peak, which is, I think, three gun nation days. Now, where where do you see the because I haven't, I haven't been in the world, so I don't really know how like I, I'm actually like, you know, I've, I've had to text you before being like, so like, what are the good matches to go to now? I don't know anymore, because like when I was doing it, there were three gun nation matches and they were the big like, I don't know what are they like, like the big 10 or the big like, you know, it was like yeah. superstition. There was multiple yeah. nationals. There was Blue Ridge and MGM Iron Man. And now I'm just kind of like I've been out of it for so long. I'm like, I don't I don't know what matches are good or not or. Or what? So where? how do you see the health of 3-Gun right now um, mm. being? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that 3-Gun Nation had was, like, you know, there's always, like, uh, a lot of publicity. Like, I think one, one of the cool things about 3-Gun Nation was shooters could always, like, log in and see where they, you know, where they were ranked against other shooters, you know, shooting, uh, you know, similar stages or the same stages across the country, like classifier system. I think that, you know, that was really cool and, like, um, it attracted a lot of, a lot of attention from sponsors, you know, that were looking to, you know, kind of jump on board or maybe, maybe even companies that were just looking to support the shooting sports at, at another level. Um, right now, you know, there's, there's a handful of really good matches and, uh, what I've noticed, I haven't shot as many matches as, as I did maybe five, eight years ago. Yeah. Maybe was shooting, you know, 10 locals and seven or eight you know, what you'd call like majors back then. Um, now I'm probably shooting four majors a year, um, sprinkling in some other, you know, shooting sports too. Um, I think the health or, or like maybe a, a pulse check on the sport is like when you go to a match now, um, you know, and I've shot superstition in Texas, um, you know, and multi-gun nationals is on, on the calendar. And then, um, you know, maybe, maybe the turnout isn't, as, as big as it once was, you know, you're not seeing 350, 400 people showing up to some of the bigger events. Um, what, what I will say is that the people that are there, they're there because they love it. Um, you know, prize tables, there's, there's several matches with really big prize tables, but, um, you know, you're not seeing, you're not seeing as many, you know, you're not seeing this as many big matches with consistently really big prize tables. And so, people know that. I mean, going to a match, like you're going to, to shoot because you love shooting and you love shooting with, you know, your friends and, and the community. I mean, that's, that's one of the things is that's really nice is that the people are there, they're um, not for a prize table. And it's not to say that companies aren't generous. I think that some of the prize tables I've seen this year, are fantastic. Uh, and last summer as well. So the prizes are, but it's just kind of a bonus, right? It's like, mm -hmm. uh, you're going, um, the quality of the stages, especially at, uh, like <clears throat> just got back from Texas. So it's, it's at the front of my mind. Um, not that other matches aren't the same way, but you know, Texas is at the front of my mind right now because we just got back. And so, uh, I think, I think Texas three gun this year was probably one of the best matches I've ever shot. And all the ROs were friendly. Every, all the staff was friendly. Um, 
you know, the meals were great. The organization and the communication ahead of time was as good or better than anything we've ever seen at a match. And again, the stages were just so well thought out uh, to the point where, you know, like uh, Aaron and Garrison, Jeremy Moore, they do a fantastic job. They've run so many matches over the years that, you know, I was talking to Jeremy Moore after the match and he's like, what'd you think? And I was like, you know, I thought while I was shooting, the fact that I never had to abandon a pistol was just happenstance. But now thinking about it, you know, you probably thought that out ahead of time, right? If we don't abandon pistols, that means we don't have to have pistol abandonment, abandonment boxes. We don't have to have people clearing pistols, which takes time. Uh, the stages, you could basically follow the shooter through most of the stages and reset as they were shooting. Uh, there's a lot of things that I think right now, like if I'm just saying the health of the sport, uh, if you're basing it on the number of major matches and the number and, and you know, the number of people that attend, most people would look at it and say three gun is in decline. But if we go, you know, probably back 10 years ago or so, like there's not that there's not significantly fewer matches than there were then. Maybe, maybe the attendance is down a little bit, but man, I can tell you like just from the matches I've been to, the people that are there are there because they want to shoot and, uh, and they like being with people that are like-minded. So I'm, I'm having a ton of fun. I'm not going to come out and say like, you know, there's, there's 50,000 more people than there ever was because that's not the case. But I also think that, um, there's some really great matches happening and, and, uh, the people that are shooting them are there cause they want to. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head for, for a lot of us that have been in the sport for a while, which is that idea, like prize tables have always been there, but like, um, at least at the top level that we're at, like, we don't necessarily need the prize tables. That's nice to have. I'm not going to mm -hmm. lie. Okay. Like walking away from a match with a gun that you're able to like either sell or whatever and, and maybe gain some profit for, or not even profit. Cause in reality, you're like, Oh good. I paid $2,000 to win a $400 yeah. pistol. Like, you know, some expenses. Yep. yeah. The, the uh, ROI was definitely <laughs> like my, my investment dude would probably be looking at me like, hey, you're crazy. You're doing this all wrong. Right. But <laughs> I mean, the fact is like, yeah, I, I, I almost felt like, um, you know, one of the cool things about the, the Ipsic World Shoot, that's the biggest pistol match in the world, and yet there's not a single prize right. given away, right? Like, it, I loved the fact that, like, you went there for the experience. You went there to, like we said, like, in reality, we, we always joke, like, oh, yeah, we're, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sponsored shooter. I'm a pro shooter. It's like, no, I'm a, I'm a professional resetter that occasionally gets to shoot some things. Yeah. Right. So the majority of the time when we when we really look at our time that we spend on the range and at these major matches, we spend three days to shoot for seven minutes collectively, like at a pistol match. Right. Mm -hmm. Which means that the rest of the time we're spent either resetting targets, hanging out with the people, hanging out with our squad, hanging out with our friends at the house afterwards, having dinner, you know, having lunch and stuff that that's the experience. The, the match experience is not the actual shooting part. That's just the, the thing that's bringing us all together. But the actual experience is really about, you know, I think we've all been to matches before where we've, we've been squatted with a few people where you're just like, oh, my God, this guy just he refuses to help. He, he just sits in the back smoking cigarettes all day. And then, you know, that, and like that doesn't that's that makes that experiment experience so negative in a way, you know, and then you've had other experiences where you're like, 
that was great. Oh my God. Do you remember when, you know, farewell came over and hit the cue ball off the table and almost put a hole in the wall at the Airbnb? You know, it's like those moments are, it's like, no one really necessarily goes like, dude, do you remember that array at Multigan Nationals three years ago? It was crazy. That's not a conversation anyone has. It's everything that happened in between. Um, so I think having the right mindset of going to these matches with that, you know, I'm not here for the prize table. I'm here for the experience of the match and hang out with my friends and to maybe make some yeah. new friends or, you know, whatever is is so much more beneficial. And I would love to see uh, with with the world shoot the the opening ceremony was cool, but the closing ceremony with like the gourmet dinner and everyone dressed up nice and it was like they made it seem like a big deal. Yeah. It was a big deal, but you know, like multi, like any of the other nationals and stuff that we go to, you know, it's like everyone still just wears their jersey. Some people just roll up from the range, so they're all dirty. You know, they've got hat hair and all that kind of stuff. Like you just kind of look at them and like, Man, nothing necessarily feels special about this. We're just here to collect our prizes and walk away. You know, but World Shoot was different. Like we we wore suits and ties and the girls got dressed up and did their hairs and we went and it was a five or seven, I can't remember. It was either five or seven course meal, like a mm-hmm. gourmet meal that was, that was brought out. And, you know, it, it was just a cool experience. So I think, yeah, if, um, the, uh, the people that are going there now are there because they love it. Yep. And I think maybe, you know, you might say even that the, the sport could be in decline, but I don't even think it's necessarily in decline from lack of interest. It may be, lack of financial ability because yeah. we all know right now, you know, we're not in a recession. Right. The economy is the strongest it's ever been. And da, da, da. but, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes for those that are not watching the video. <laughs> so but please know, I don't really feel that way, but um, you know, I think that a lot of people are probably even in the position where they're like, Oh, I would love to go shoot, but I also, I just had to get new tires put on the car. So there's eight hundred dollars out well, the window that I that, and, I mean, and also like we're 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 seeing ammo come back down, but I don't know that it's going to go as low as it was before all the 2020 stuff, um, whether it be riots or COVID or or whatever supply chain issues. Like we've seen ammo come back down to and normalize a little bit, but it's still more expensive now to shoot a match when you factor in the cost of travel, the cost of food, um, you've got, you know, it's not that match fees have gone up, but, uh, you know, if you go and shoot a bunch of ammo and travel and stay at a hotel, I mean, like everything's more expensive now. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure there's some people who like, if you said, Hey, would you come shoot a match and I'll pay for everything? Like they'd be like, absolutely. But then when you throw and say, okay, the average cost to go shoot a match is around $2,000. It's like, you know, maybe, maybe there's, maybe I should save that money. Maybe I should, you know, maybe I shouldn't spend it on something like that. And so like that factors in definitely. Um, you know, the one thing I will say is like, whenever I see, you know, some of the guys that were shooting three gun, when I got into it, when I see them talking about how the sport has changed so much and, and like how, how, you know, it's just, it's not worth going. It's like, man, I challenge you, like come shoot a match. Like it might not be the same group of people that it was before, but I've only been shooting three gun for a little over a decade. And I can tell you the number of people that have come air quotes out of nowhere and now win matches. Um, it's, it's awesome. Like seeing like some of the people that were just new several years ago. Now, I mean, I remember 
like in the last couple of years, seeing a couple of names at the top and be like, wait, who's that guy? Right. Mm. And the guys who were sitting home and, and posting on Facebook that the matches just aren't the same as they were. It's like, no, they're not. It's, it's different and you should show up and you should see some of the, some of the cool stuff, some of the innovation and the gear, some of the, you know, some of the new shooters that have come from different backgrounds and started to shoot because uh, I can tell you, like, I still look up to the guys um, that were kind of the pioneers in the sport. You know, like uh, we had we had a great squad at Superstition. I shot with Mark Roth and Kerry D'Amatos and and uh, Bruce Pyatt and, and some of those guys. And like th- we had a blast and those guys have been shooting as long as anybody. And they had a ton of fun. We had a ton of fun. And like I'm just kind of bummed out that there are some other people that are like, ah, oh, it's different. It's not the same. And it's like, no, it's not. But guess what? Like we can still go and joke about how like some kid we've never heard of won the match. Like it's still fun. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, man, that's my little soapbox message is if you think three guns different, doesn't necessarily mean it's worse. No. Yeah. And, and even then, if, uh, if it is different in a worse way, then you can't necessarily do anything about it by not getting involved. Like right. it's it's like if you want to if you want to just sit in the background and talk underneath your breath about how this is like well then don't expect any change. Like no one no one can change if they don't know they're doing anything wrong or they're you know it's like right. you know so so those that uh, that maybe haven't been doing it, like I I've, I haven't said anything about three gun because I haven't been doing it so I, I don't have an opinion. Now, once I start shooting it again, if I see things I don't like, then you can bet your ass that I'm going to be like, yeah, I went to that match. I thought this was stupid. Like, I got no problem saying that. And, I'll, and I normally let match directors know because it's like it's as a consumer of that product. If I'm unhappy with something, I want the match director to know. It's not that it's not that I'm telling him because uh, I want to hurt his feelings or I want right. to threaten him with, like, oh, I'm going to pull the sponsorship from Rock Island. Like, no, like, oh, no I want you to build a better match. Yeah. You know, and and most of the time it's not even things that I'm exclusively complaining about. It might be something that like the squad as a whole is like, man, they got to do something about this. This was this right. was not planned out right. You know, it's like to say, hey, just so you know, my squad at your match, we had a great time, but this point, this situation arose, so just you know, bring it to your attention. Then that's how you expect, and and you know, now at that point. If you bring it to someone's attention and the next year you have the same issue and then you say it again and the next year, okay, fine. And clearly they just don't care about your opinion sure. or whatever. Like that, now you've got a, a reason to be a little upset because you yeah, brought I mean, it to your attention. Times, but. You know, there's a lot of things too where it's like, uh, I've, I've been a local match director. I was a match director uh, at our local club for about four years. And I always, when I was building stages, like I had other guys there helping because. Like I see it through the lens that of the division that I shoot and you have to be careful, you know, where it's like, it could be something where, you know, a match director shoots a lot of open or they shoot a lot of, you know, modified or whatever division they're shooting. And then a bunch of open shooters go through and they're like, Hey, that wasn't very well thought out. You know, I think it's always important to have like multiple sets of eyes on things and, you know, kind of where you can cross cross reference and, and kind of like throw ideas back and forth. But you know, if you see an issue and it's like, oh man, I never thought about that because I've never had to deal with that in the division that I shoot. Or, you know, maybe, maybe a junior shooter isn't as tall and they might not be able to get, you know, on a prop the same way that somebody who's six foot two might. And so just having an open mind as a match director, but as a shooter, you can't just 
keep that feedback to yourself because how are you expecting anything to change if you don't share the feedback? You just have to be careful about how you deliver the feedback. Deliver it in a way that's like, hey, like, I'm not sure if you thought of this or, hey, maybe here's something that our squad, you know, kind of came up with maybe, you know, just a little piece of input. Um, but like feedback, whether it be professionally in your marriage and in, in your job and a match, whatever feedback is like, like the success of that feedback, like actually helping is a lot on the delivery. And it's a lot of how you present that information, right? It's not like, hey, I can't believe you did that. That was terrible. Like, don't ever do that again versus, hey, I was thinking about this. Here's my thoughts on it. And, you know, I'm sure you've already thought of it, but hey, maybe, you know, look at it through this lens next time. And that person, you know, if you approach it right, they won't be defensive. They won't put their guard up. It's just, hey, cool. That's, that's awesome. I've never thought of that before. Yeah, and, and I think that's good life advice. If you start on the attack, don't be surprised when the return is a defense. Yep. <laughs> like, that's how things go. Yeah, you know, or even an attack back. It's like, yeah, that's exactly how a fight goes. If you throw a punch, then don't be surprised when a punch comes flying and hits you in the face back. You're like, whoa, where'd that come from? Like, well, it's kind of started. Right? Yeah, it's kind of where you started, so. <laughs> yeah, if you, want, if you want to start at a 10, then we can, we can start there. But I prefer yeah. a, a 1. And see if we can, you know, it's a lot easier to escalate than it is to de-escalate a situation, I think. Exactly. So now, um, you know, I got to say, so, so, and I'm just bringing this up because of Texas three gun, we shot Texas three gun uh, when I think it was still like the shooter source at triple uh, C range or something like that, I think is where it was in um, Crescent, Texas. Yeah. Different, and, match. Different match, same match director though. Yeah. And, and I remember uh, that was a very very entertaining match uh for me to go to one uh we were all crashing all the vortex shooters were crashing in one house uh so that was a lot of fun being able to for us to all hang out and whatnot but um, well, that was <laughs> yeah but that was uh that was the year that dustin felix took my rental no no it, so dustin felix drove his hyperfire truck down which was which was a dodge yep down right and he rode with, I think it was Adam Maxwell and someone else. I can't remember who. And then the day I was supposed to leave, I was supposed to go visit a, I think it was a dealer or something like that, that I had in the area. Um, he wanted me to come check out his facility and stuff. So I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. I'll get there. My flight's not until like three or something like that. So I got plenty of time. And I remember I woke up and uh, I went over, got dressed, how everything's packed. And I went over to the, the uh, desk that I had in the hallway that I put all my stuff on. And I'm like, where are my keys at where are my keys like, oh my gosh like did i pack them so i had to unpack everything i checked all my pants pockets and stuff like that and i remember i was trying to get a hold of you but you went off on like a helicopter hog hunt or something like that that day <laughs> yep and so you're out there playing in the sky i'm freaking out because i can't find my car key it's like starting to come around to like 11 o'clock or something like that in the afternoon and I'm just like texting everybody in the house trying to get a hold of you because I'm like, maybe, maybe just something happened. He, he accidentally grabbed it or something like that. And I just figured you were like my hope because I wasn't able to get in contact with anyone else was, oh was that you God. had it. Yeah. And then I ended up uh, getting a message from Dustin uh, eventually. I think I think it was maybe he it was, was Josh like in Oklahoma or something, wasn't he? Yeah. Like he, he finally messaged. He goes, 
So, like, he sends a picture of Maxwell holding the key in the back of the seat because it was one where you didn't need to put the key in. You just had yeah. to have it in your pocket. Yeah. So I guess Adam saw it and thought, oh, that's Dustin's keys and grabbed it and just put them in his pocket and got in the truck. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I remember, like, I was like, well, you guys left at, like, 4 a.m. It's now 11. <laughs> so I'm certain there's no way you can turn around and get those back to me by the time I need to be at the airport. So I had to call, and they had to have a tow truck come through and and pick me up, and I had to cancel my my meeting with my dealer because I was like, I'm not going to make it. My car is not useful right now, and, and all that stuff. So Dude, that it was, was very crazy. fun. Yeah, it was it was a very fun, entertaining match. But there were, there was something else that happened at that match. That was it was such a small moment, but it was one that still sticks in my head to this day. And now I'm starting to look into that world and that was that you had a pair of night vision goggles that i i don't know if you just gotten or whatever and you let me look through them uh out in the front yard we were goofing around and you let me look through them and i was just like holy crap this is freaking cool like jesus christ so with that being said at nra show i did a uh a little go around with a couple of different companies. I ended up talking to Sightmark and Pulsar to talk about some night vision and thermal stuff. So you have some night vision experience. A little bit. A little bit. If someone were to get into night vision right now, that's on being me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of options for digital night vision versus the analog. And I don't, I don't even think many people know that there's like night vision as actually an analog process but now they have a digital side of it. Um, Digital, obviously, is very cost-effective, but the problem with it is that you need more batteries. It it drains battery and all that kind of stuff a lot more, but analog is still pretty pretty high up there in price. Yeah. So for those that are maybe considering or thinking, and and understand, just because you're buying night vision doesn't mean you're trying to be one of those cool tactical guys that wants to be on Instagram. and There's a lot of applications to night vision that aren't just about the tactical world, such as coyote hunting, predator hunting, hog hunting, stuff like that. That's Mm -hmm. all very, very valid reasons. And in reality, it's like, let's be honest, what guy doesn't want to put a bump helmet and go clear his house in his underwear (laughs) in the middle of the night if he had to. But when we're kids, we got him when we're 40. Yeah, now now we got adult money. We can actually do it, right? So um, what's your experience in the night vision world as far as the analog versus digital? Do you see a a benefit plus side? Like, like, is it really that big of a deal to to tell someone, like, yeah, you're definitely going to want to cry once, buy once, um, and go the analog? You you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, I think a lot of that stuff is still kind of – um, buy once, cry once. Uh, Obviously, there's some really great options out there. Um, you definitely get, you definitely kind of get what you pay for. You know, we don't make any night vision or, or thermal devices. So I'm, I'm going to kind of go out of my realm of professional expertise and saying that all of this is based off of what I've used and what I've bought. And so, um, I don't know that world as well as maybe some others here in the company do, uh, or people that we shoot with do. Uh, but, but in my use and my experience of night vision is like, if you if you're willing to spend a little bit more you'll probably get a considerably better product um i have very limited experience with digital night vision i've seen some stuff uh, i think i've seen some stuff from i think psionics and and maybe a couple of other brands like um sightmark or atn um i haven't played with it a lot so i i don't really want to say too much about it but 
Um, but yeah, I think typically, you know, like you're explaining the analog, the tube, you know, the, the tube style, um, night vision monoculars or binos, um, are really, I think still kind of the way to go from what I've seen. Um, there's no, you know, there's no lag, there's no delay, um, while you're looking through them. And I feel like, uh, while they might not have some of the flashier features, I think the overall quality of the image while you're looking through them is still better on average, especially when you look at um, what what I would want to use it for, you know, going out at night, shooting some steel targets, going out hog hunting, um, you know, maybe maybe playing with some of the cool gear that we've got. And so for me, like that, you know, that PBS 14, whether it be a single tube or a dual tube or a 31, something like that would be where I'd go, but you know, you are looking at, at more money, but I think what I learned when I started using it was like, if I've got nicer stuff, I'm going to use it way more. And so that's, that's kind of where I would say it's like, if you've got something that just kind of allows you to get the job done, you definitely won't have the same experience as if you buy that, that product that'll really optimize, you know, performance while you're using it. Mm, okay. Now, would you would you suggest someone go along uh, along the routes of getting like a monocular and then attaching it to a helmet or some or you know getting the head straps or whatever and then learning how to use like a light, uh, like an IR laser system or something like that or would you suggest someone that's just getting into it if their if their plan is to use it primarily for nighttime hunting and stuff like that to just get something that's really more so going to be mounted to the firearm? From what I've done for for like predator hunting and night shooting i've found that for me i like the helmet mounted night vision because i can look around and i don't have to point a gun at where i'm looking that's one thing to think about is if it's mounted to the gun like wherever you want to look through you're pointing a gun at and that's kind of violates one of the main rules of firearm safety is don't point a gun at anything until unless you intend to destroy it so for me, like, it's always been more like navigating, uh, walking around, um, looking at stuff. I'm going to use helmet mounted night vision. Um, I think thermal mounted, uh, you know, there is a little bit of a delay with some of the thermal stuff. You know, some of the newer stuff has gotten a lot faster and I'm, I'm not even privy to a lot of the, the, you know, top tier tech stuff out there, but, um, you know, like there is a little bit of a lag in looking through thermal, uh, whereas I don't see as much of that looking through night vision. So like if I had to generalize, I would say thermal mounted to the gun, night vision mounted to a helmet. Um, if you don't have a thermal on the gun and you still want to shoot, still do the helmet, helmet mounted night vision, but do an IR illuminator uh, to aim the gun. Uh, for all, you know, for, for a lot of the distances you're going to use it at, it's not to say that you couldn't shoot farther and hit targets farther. I think on a safe, closed range, uh, you know, I've shot targets uh, up to several hundred yards, and it's probably nothing compared to what some people have done with some of the some of the more advanced stuff. Um, but it's not to say that you can't do it. But just understand, like if if I'm if I'm hunting, if I'm predator hunting at night, I, I still need to be able to determine if it's like somebody's stray dog or if it's a coyote. Like, I don't want to just see a hot spot out in the field through thermal and shoot. So a lot of times I think people get hung up on like, how far can I look? How far can I shoot? Oh, if I have, a, if I have a, you know, an aiming laser on my, on my rifle, I can only shoot out to a couple hundred yards. And it's like, 
Hey, that's not always the worst thing because the closer that target is, the more likely we're to get a positive ID on the target. And, and again, I don't want to be shooting the neighbor's dog that, that heard, you know, my rabbit in distress call and wandered across the field to check it out. Like I need to make sure that if I'm coyote hunting, I'm shooting a coyote and anything mm-hmm. behind it is not anything, you know, that I don't want to point a gun at. Right. So, uh, just, I think don't overthink it too much. Look at it. Don't look at night vision or thermal and buying it and being like, this has to be this be all end all setup for everything. I want to be able to shoot long range at night and I want to be able to shoot inside of the close quarters at night. Like, no, if you're buying it, what are you using it for? And it's kind of like with a lot of optics or gear selection, don't look at, you know, don't look at something and be like, this has to do everything because every product on the market in one way, shape or form was designed for a specific purpose. When the people were designing that product, they either thought of it for this application, whether it be hunting or this application, whether it be, you know, more of a competition style or, you know, it's like a lot of people would probably look at the guns that we shoot and be like, wow, that's that's not very practical at all. And it's like, no, this gun was made for this thing that I'm doing today. It's not my carry gun, even though maybe it could have been, but it's not. And and it's not, you know, it's not the. The nightstand gun, it's, this gun is made for shooting this thing that I'm doing today. And it, and if you're able to, like, if you're, if you're able to decide, like, I'm going to buy night vision for coyote hunting, and then you know where you live, you know what environment you're using it in, you know, you know, the parameters of the places you can hunt, you know, what, what environment exactly you're using it in, you could probably you could probably get by spending a little bit less because you're not trying to make it this all encompassing product. You're just, you know, selecting it for the thing that you're doing with it. And I think that's the thing that a lot of times people get kind of hung up on is like, can it do this? Can it do this? Can it do this? Um, if we're talking about, you know, uh, a lightweight hunting rifle, um, yeah, it might not be the nicest on your shoulder when you shoot it because you selected attribute attributes, of that firearm that make it nice for carrying in the backcountry, but it's probably also not going to be your PRS gun because it recoils way too much or it's the wrong cartridge or uh, it, it's not optimized in one way, shape or form. So whenever people, I'm going off on a tangent here, John, sorry, but like whenever you're looking at gear, I think look at it for what you want to buy it for, what the intended purpose is. And if there's some, if there's a way that it can be used, you know, maybe in a little more broader sense, then that's great. But you shouldn't judge a product because it doesn't do everything. It's it's like, does it do the thing it was intended for? Cool. Can it do some other stuff? Okay. That's cool too, but that's not what we judge it off of. Well, I didn't stop you on your tangent because you were making a lot of good points. And, and uh, maybe that's one of the things that, yeah, I've, I've been having issues with lately was, yeah, I was trying to find that product that kind of does it all. And, and I need to stop doing that because, like you just said, yeah, I didn't think about it. It's like I have a single stack. I don't take that gun to limited nationals because it's not built for limited nationals. It's built for single stack nationals. So, like, why would I look at my single stack and be like, why, why can't I shoot? Why can't I win limited nationals with you? It's like, well, because it wasn't designed for that. It was meant for... The single stack world. That's why I had it built. So no, yeah, you, you brought up some very, very good points with that. Um, and then as far as yeah, uh, I think I like your idea of yeah, don't necessarily mount it on the gun because you've got to point the gun at everything you want to try and identify at that point, which means that you know, 
you got to swing a gun around you, in the dark. Yeah. And if you're with multiple people, you don't know where that those people necessarily are, which means you could very well just straight up muzzle someone that's only 10 yards away from you. Um, no, when you brought up some at, excellent points there. When I look at like some of the, I mean, I follow some accounts I've, that do a lot of like thermal night vision hunting. Um, Anthony Amatine, so TX killer, he's like one of the most well-rounded uh, sources of knowledge. And he has a couple of guys that he shoots with a lot that also have really great pages um, on Instagram, particularly. Uh, and then like the O'Neill Ops guys up in South Dakota, like they, they post quite a bit of content with, with thermal night vision, stuff like that. But um, the I look at kind of what some of those guys do and think like, okay, maybe I don't have that budget for gear, but like, how can I scale that back and get the same kind of results or similar results? And what I see is like the guys that are doing it, maybe not, maybe, I don't know if professionally is the right way, because I don't know if that's what they're doing to make their living, but like the people who are enthusiasts and like using that kind of stuff at the highest level are running helmet mounted night vision and typically either an IR laser on a gun and a thermal or at least an IR laser. But most of the time they're running, you know, a dedicated thermal scope or clip on in front of an optic and then a laser and helmet mounted night vision. And sometimes helmet mounted night vision with like thermal overlay. But again, we're also talking about like, what, what do you want to spend? So how do I do that? I'll scale back from that a little bit and be like, okay, maybe I can't afford the dual tubes, but I can get, you know, a single tube PVS 14 on a good mount and I can get, you know, a, um, uh, a decent laser and like start from there and then add stuff as you go. And from my understanding, night vision and thermal stuff, like it, it holds its value pretty well too. So it's, it's really, it kind of seems like, uh, it takes a lot to get into the game, but once you're in it, yeah, you're there. And like, I think from what I've seen on the consumer side, thermal, this thermal is changing a lot faster than night vision. So like, I definitely agree. Like night vision holds its value very well. Like even stuff, uh, even stuff over the course of 10 years or so, it's not devaluing that quickly, but thermal has having a lot of, you know, electronic components and stuff. Like I've got a, I've got a, uh, clip on thermal that probably eight, seven years ago, six years ago, it, it was probably an $8,000 unit. And now it's probably a $3,000 unit, uh, because now stuff has recording they have integrated range finders. You can change the reticle. You can Bluetooth. Like I was talking to a guy the other day that said like, he can Bluetooth through his thermal so that people who aren't even out there hunting with him can watch what he's doing. Like mm. for that stuff changes a lot. It's a lot more, um, susceptible, like susceptible to changes in technology and different stuff that comes out. But like definitely night vision holds its value incredibly well. Um, and I'm sure that over time thermal will kind of get to a point where, you know, maybe, maybe it hits some of the limits of what are possible or, 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 what the consumer market is able to do with it. I'm not sure though. Um, but definitely buy once, cry once with that stuff. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Cause I've been, I've been looking at some, some products and, and trying to figure out what, which route I wanted to go. Um, no, oh, you, you brought up some excellent, you, you definitely helped me out. So I can, I can. if anyone else, 
if anyone else gained any knowledge from that, then awesome. But please note that was definitely a selfish question for me to want to ask. <laughs> I can probably send you some like specific product recommendations offline too, just stuff that I've used and stuff that I've had experience with. Nice. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I, I definitely would, would. I value your opinion. I value your uh, expertise and, and all that kind of stuff and, and your Sweet. experience. So, well, like um, you mentioned at the beginning, like you've, you've helped me a lot. And so, uh, you know, I think you're probably one of the first people to pull me aside and tell me to like, uh, like get out of my own head and like just shoot. Cause you know, I think at, at points in time, you're like, Hey, you're really good at this, but you're, you're preventing yourself from performing because you're, you're in your own head. So I owe you, I owe a lot of that to you. And like, just on the shooting side, like you've always been a good friend, but also been like a really good, like source of information on, on, you know, stage planning and breaking down a stage and stuff like that. So I, I'm just happy that I can actually do something back for you. Oh man. Getting me all choked up here. I didn't realize it meant so much to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a fun road so far. It's, it's been an awesome journey. Uh, you've been a great, like it's, it's awesome. Just be able to like, shoot you a text about anything and, and know that I'm going to be getting some, honest information if you think i'm being stupid you're you're not afraid to be like yeah no that's dumb you should definitely not do that <laughs> you know like that's yeah the so, filter version ah filter or unfiltered I, I don't i feel like we don't even need the unfiltered version because i'm not going to take it like a man ruben's being mean to me but no um no like you said though it sometimes it's about the delivery of of a message can can definitely mean a lot more and it says and, and i think that's you know that says a lot about you as a person but i, I think that's why we get along so well is because we're, we're, I'm not afraid to to be an a hole, but I I definitely don't like we said I don't like starting conversations off at a ten. I'd rather start at a one and yeah. go from there. So I think that's why we get along so well. Well, um, like now you know, and now like one of the things that I've you know I, I had I was fortunate to grow up with you know a dad who was into shooting and, and hunting and and brother and brother in laws and you know guys that I was around uncles grandpas like I was fortunate enough to be around people that you know, I got to spend time with that kind of just gave me the straight truth and you had to deal with it. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of times people want to tone things down because they're, you know, they're maybe worried about how somebody would take it. And it's like, you can, you can give truth without being harsh or offensive, right? Like you can, your delivery is so important on how you do that because it can be a matter of like, someone coming away from it and be like, Oh yeah, you know what? You're, you're right about that versus getting defensive and, and writing you off because you had, you know, poor methods or poor delivery. And so that's, I mean, I'm, I'm always like trying to find that balance of like, uh, you know, telling people what they should hear, but also, in, and then also in my own, like in my own life, like taking advice, right? Like I want to, I want to hear it. Like if somebody has an issue with something, like I want to hear it. Um, mm -hmm. and I'll do my best to, to prepare myself to accept it. But, um, but I think a lot of times, like how, how we treat people is so reflective of like how we actually think of them. And so like, if I tell somebody something that, you know, might, might not be the easiest information to hear, like it's actually a sign of respect because like, I want, I want to provide input if it's helpful, that'll ultimately help people, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not why I would say it like that, but like, like if somebody knew something about you and they withheld it because they were afraid that you wouldn't be able to handle it, that's kind of like, no, like I can handle it, but like, 
if, if you care about somebody, share the hard stuff with them. Yeah, you know, and I think, I think uh, there, there's something about that mindset that you have to remember from the other side, which means, means that if it was very difficult for you to receive, you have to understand the person saying it then most times, it was very difficult for them to deliver it. Yeah, exactly. Like no one, no one wants to give you bad information or, or bad news. No one wants to give you negative fee, you know, like from right. that. But like the people that will do it, they will, they will go through the uncomfortable event of telling you, knowing that it's going to be uncomfortable for you and not enjoying the fact that it's going to be uncomfortable for you. That makes them uncomfortable too. So, um, always try and take that with a little bit of grain of salt too. Yeah. It's like if, if, yeah. if someone actually cares about you and they're giving you information, you don't necessarily want to hear, trust me, they, they probably most necessarily didn't want to give it to you or be the one to have to give it right. to you, but they are. Yeah. And, and yeah. also like understand that like if somebody is telling you something that will, you know, let's just say, let's, let's just say somebody's telling you something that'll make you better, better at being something better at doing something better at accomplishing a task. It's because they wanted you to, to be better. It's, you know, if, if they didn't actually have the best intentions for you, they would just kind of leave you alone and let you, you know, stay in your own circle. Um, but if somebody's giving you advice, it's because they care about you and they want you to want you to be better, or be better at something. And, you know, that that brings me to a quote that I just because, you know, I've got my three year old now, I've got a 15 year old. And, and it was this this quote that said, by the time you realize your parents were probably right, you have a kid telling you that you're probably wrong. Yeah. Um, it's funny that like, you know, like our, our, like my whole life, at least with my 15 year old, clearly, and they're not even with the three year old, obviously, but like, um, yeah, it's always been this thing of like, look, I'm not, I'm not telling you this because I'm mad at you. I'm not telling you this because I'm, I'm, I want to take away your fun. I'm, I'm making you do this because it's something you need to do. It's something that is important, you know, schoolwork or whatever. But like, it's always just been like, I, I don't want to be mean. I don't want to ground you. I don't want to have to take things away, but there's a level of things that you, you messed up. So now you have to suffer some sort of consequence for it. And that's the life lesson here. It's not that you're grounded because you did this. The life lessons I need you to take is that you, you made a decision. Now there's a consequence to pay for it. So how, you know, you constantly want to be trying to figure out what is the, the yeah. right decision to make um, and make better decisions and stuff like that. But yeah, it's just funny that it's like, God, why, why can't it just be so easy to transfer that stuff to your kid? And it's like when you what? yell at your child, like, no, don't touch the stove. You're not yelling at them because you hate them or you're angry with them. You're trying to protect them. But sometimes they just want to reach up and touch it anyway. And you're just like, well, what did we learn? <laughs> you yeah. know, like some, it's not that some of those have, lessons. It's not that you have all the answers, but like maybe what maybe like what we should be doing for our kids is like putting it all in a book and writing it like cheat codes, like on the front of the book and be like, here's how you avoid this dumb thing that I did. Here's how you avoid this thing that I did. And, and then it would be like, maybe again, circle back to messaging. There, there's a delivery, right? Like, Hey, here's all the stuff that I wish I would have done differently. Here you go. And you know, one of the wildest things too, was the fact that like, I, and, and it was, it, I only figured it out once I had my first child was the idea of like, me growing up, I always thought my parents knew the answers. I always thought they had it all figured out. Mm -hmm. But then I realized, like, no, e even with the amount of, of raising that they did for me and, and how they did a great job of it, when I became a dad, I still had to figure a lot of stuff out on my own. Obviously, I had I had tips, tricks, pointers, but, like, to execute that and to – and sometimes, like – it doesn't matter how many things you write down. There's always going to be some experience that you're like, 
well, that that wasn't in the book. What am I supposed to do now? <laughs> like, you know, e- being in the EMS world for me, it's like I, you can run a diabetic call, and here's kind of what you want to look for, but no diabetic call was ever the same. Something was always, you know, past health issues or current health issues could could always yeah. change aspects of it and stuff. And and I think it was funny that for kids, it's like, man, I thought my parents had it figured out the whole time, and they were just faking it the best they could to to exude that confidence you know what i mean so like as, as a child like you can kind of be like if my parents are getting a little weirded out that makes me even more anxious because i'm like oh dad looks pretty uncomfortable about this situation he doesn't know what to do like oh my gosh what's going to happen to us it just makes it worse so as a parent you kind of like even though inside your brain you're screaming like oh my god what do i do you still give off that air of confidence around your children because you don't want them you don't, you don't want to feed into their anxiety or make them fear anything that you know maybe is is on your mind but um yeah no that was it's funny that uh, yeah it's like i guess just wish we could get those past lessons on without them having to learn them the hard way because things just be so much better but yeah now now there's one more thing i need to talk to you and this this is vortex related but uh you know obviously i've got a hat i've got shirts i'm wearing your shorts I mean, we got socks on. When is Vortex going to come out with some underwear? Because that's what's lacking in my drawer now is some good underwear. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we got a focus group right now. Um, you know, it's going through some, like, really tough questions. And the biggest thing is, you know, how do you warranty underwear? I think once we get that figured out, you know, I mean, who knows? Like, sky's the limit. But, <laughs> no, man, I don't know. Um I would say, I would say there that, um, you know, like when you talk about like socks, I mean, it's one of those things where, um, you know, everybody wears them and, uh, and the sizing is pretty easy to do. You know, you don't have to carry a ton of skews, but like, then you look at, you know, pants and maybe you have length and waist and then color. And so, I mean, for us, it was just like, a a thing of like, Hey, like, how can we serve the customer? How can we do this? And, you know, I, I, we get a lot of people that ask for underwear or boxers or whatever. And I'm not sure I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not on the product team for clothing, but uh, I'll definitely bring it up to them and tell them that, tell them that you need some. <laughs> not just me, everyone. I mean, every dude, let's, let's be honest. Every dude that's listening to this right now has probably got a two or three pairs of underwear that they just don't want to let go, but they probably should. Yeah. Like the, <laughs> I've seen that meme where it's like my underwear watching me spend money on new gun parts. And it's like the Spider-Man mask where like half the mask is <laughs> scratched off. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. No. Um, no, you know what? Uh, you know, as far as the apparel side goes, obviously, um, I think that the clothing is awesome, but, and again, from being in the outdoor world, for those that have to deal with it, the socks that have the tick repellent in it, I think was probably one of the greatest things that um, you guys have been able to send me because yeah, like I didn't realize ticks were as big of a pain in the ass as they are right here in the Midwest. Like I, you know, I'm not experienced with them in, in Vegas. Like mm-hmm. there's a different kind of parasite in Vegas and it's, you know, the, the person, but um, like I remember the first time I, I had one on me and I didn't realize I did. 
until I was like getting ready to jump in the shower and I took my shirt off and I was like rub, went to go rub my back and I was like what the hell is that and I pulled and I looked and I'm like oh my god it's a tick like I, I got one on me this is a real thing and it was just it was it bogged my mind that like I had no clue it was on me I didn't know how long it was on me or anything like that right. so the the idea of being like, okay yeah I've got to I've got to spray my clothes down to, to help yeah. it and then when you guys came out the, the pair of socks so those that don't know they do have a pair of socks that have uh, what's the chemical in it again it's um, um permethrin permethrin yeah so it's infused in the fabric. It's good up for up to a hundred washes. Yeah. Um, so right off the bat, literally from the ground up, you can start your tick defense, which which we all know ticks can cause some very serious, disgusting health issues that can be life changing. Um, yeah. Lyme's disease, uh, Lone Star, the Lone Star tick with the uh, um, red meat allergy and stuff like that. They they can they can mess you up pretty good. Yeah. So so. If you want, if you are living in an area that ticks are an issue, then you could definitely go check those out because um, I do wear them now every time I go out hunting. When there's, you know, obviously in the the winter time, late late into deer season, I don't necessarily need them because all the ticks are dead, stupid bastards. But um, <laughs> anytime prior to that, I, I do basically have those on my feet and whatnot. Um, now, last thing I want to talk about, uh, which we've talked about before. And I wanted to see if anything has changed or if you've come up with any or found any other new products that you particularly like. Because the big one that you talked to me about was dead air suppressors and how, how great of a product they are. So what I wanted to see was if, if you could only buy one, not one brand, but let's say one caliber of a suppressor. If someone was getting ready to get into the suppressor game, sure. what would you suggest they buy for the first time? Um what would you suggest they buy for the first time as far as a caliber goes? Um, I think that the thing to know is that like you can, like there are some marginal returns. Like when you get really specialized, like if you shoot a lot of six, five and you buy a six, five, you know, inner diameter, uh, suppressor, like you will probably, probably gain a couple of decibels, uh, of sound reduction or noise reduction. Um, this is from what I've seen. I'm not like a suppressor expert. I just get to use them a lot. Um, I think for the most part, like a 30 caliber suppressor will cover most of what most people need to do. Uh, if you were, you know, looking to suppress like a 450 Bushmaster or a 350 Legend or a nine millimeter, you may want to look at like some of the like 36 or 45 caliber, um, the 458 diameter suppressors. Uh, just know that like, if you're going to shoot like a 223 through a 458 diameter suppressor, you may lose a little bit of that suppression. But I think overall, most people can be pretty well served with a, like a, a general use 30 caliber suppressor. They do really good. You know, when you, when you use them on like a 223 on like an AR, they still do a pretty good job. Uh, the nice part is that a, Slightly being overboard from what I've seen kind of decreases your back pressure in, in some of the DI guns like the in the AR platform. So I think most of the time, you know, a, a lot of people, if you're looking to be like, I just want to buy one suppressor, you know, look at something like looking at like 300 Win Mag or uh, 300 PRC rated as far as like uh, pressure. Um, that's probably where I would start. And then if you wanted to suppress a nine millimeter, look at something that can be used to suppress nine millimeter, but also like 
uh, larger diameter. So if you wanted to put it on a 45 or a 450 Bushmaster or a 458 SOCOM, um, then like make that step. But I don't know. I've, I've had a lot of really good luck with like, uh, the Omega nine K I think it's called the Omega. Uh, I don't quote me on this, but, uh, it was for a long time, uh, silencer co Omega nine K. And like, I've used that on a lot of different things. Um, and it's been really good and that's kind of a general purpose presser, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think look at like a 30 caliber, uh, 300 wind mag rated suppressor and it'll probably do a lot of what you need to do. And being someone that just recently got into the suppressor game, I would fully agree because my suppressor that I have, obviously I won my suppressor, so I'm not going to complain about it, but it's a two, two, three. And I'm just kind of like, I'm getting ready to build a, a 300 blackout and I'm just like, oh, man, now, now I got to get a, a 30 cal suppressor yep. where right off the bat, like if I had a 30 cal suppressor off the bat, then I'd, I'd be set for the 300 blackout plus the two, two, three and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I do agree. I think, um, if, if you were going to get into it, get a 30 cal. And a lot um, of it like depends on like the volume and how much you're going to be shooting it. So a lot of people would say like, you know, don't shoot 22 long rifle through a centerfire suppressor. Biggest thing there is just, it's way overkill. It's also really hard to clean. So, you know, a lot of the 22 rimfire, 17 rimfire suppressors are smaller, lighter, they're completely disassemblable. Some of them are customizable. And so like, that's the big thing, high volume through a 22, you get a lot of buildup in that suppressor. And on most centerfire suppressors that where you can't take it down and disassemble it, they become very hard to clean. And so it's, if you bought a 30 caliber suppressor, if you had either the right QD mounts or the right thread adapters, you could mount it on a lot of different things. Whereas if you buy a 223 or a 556 specific suppressor, you can't put that on anything bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, no. So, and 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 I'll say this, I, I, I mean, I've said it on a couple episodes so far, but like the, I never understood suppressors until I got one. And now that I have one, I mean, just the other day, just yesterday, I was out shooting my, my rifle, getting some some training in. And, you know, obviously with, with the three gun world, I'm not going to necessarily run my suppressor because I don't want that extra weight on the front end. And, and then there's always the issue of like, oh, clock didn't pick it up. Now you got to reshoot like, oh, my God, I just did. Right. Um, but at the end, I, I threw the suppressor on to do some do some more shooting where I just wanted to like I just wanted to shoot. But I was tired of hearing the concussion, so I put it on. And just like, man, throwing that on and just taking the second set of earphones off and being like, oh, this is so much more enjoyable. Like, oh, my gosh. Yes, it adds extra weight. Yes, it adds extra length. But, like, the enjoy the, the, the amount of enjoyment you get at the range when you just don't have that concussive blast constantly beating your eardrums in is uh, it's it's very difficult to explain to someone how nice it is until you actually let them experience it and shoot it and they're like okay now i get it but like yeah. i can totally i can totally admit that i'm i look at suppressors now on the daily being like oh gosh i want to get this one and i want to get that one now just because there's just like not just because it, it's not just a cool factor right there is a legitimately safe like i the the amount of comfort that you get from not having to wear two sets of hearing pro or risk damaging your hearing more i mean the fact that it's still an item that we have to wait over a year for to to get authorization from the government to uh own and possess is just Dude, the more and more i've learned it's, it's so stupid. crazy like we 
you know, we, um, we're really fortunate in that we get to do a lot of like customer events. So sometimes that's a training with a dealer where, you know, we're working directly with a retailer, um, you know, events like you and I have been to right together and, you know, we show up, you're with, with Armscore, I'm with Vortex. Like we see, you know, shoot a lot of these same events. And so the, the amount that when we're training, like the amount of communication we can have with people is so valuable, right? We don't have to have double earplugs and, you know, plugs and muffs and everybody's yelling and can't hear anything. But so like the communication while we're doing it, we can actually teach while we're shooting. We don't have to like take a break and take the ear pro off and then talk. We can actually talk through that whole, whole process. The other thing we do a lot of like customer events where maybe we're taking people shooting who normally wouldn't, you know, go shooting, uh, just as an activity. So maybe, so a lot of times people have never shot before and will always shoot suppressed. And the people are like, wow, that was really enjoyable. Like, and they're like, okay, now let's take suppressor off and shoot without one. And they're like, Ooh, I don't like that. That's why would anybody do that? Like, you, why, why would you shoot without one of those things? And they're like, yeah, you. <laughs> exactly. And you know, the other thing that I found when, while we're talking about these customer events um, that I absolutely hate is the fact that like, sometimes, you know, you get some of these, uh, these families that come up to you and they've got kids and stuff and, and they're not always wearing the eye protection. They're not always wearing the ear protection because it's uncomfortable. It's hot. It's yeah. sweaty and they're kids. But like, you know, every now and then you don't, you see a kid that's got like, they're, they're maybe taking it off to say something to their dad, right. As you gave a, yeah. a rifle to a, another customer. And as soon as they send that round off, that kid has broken the seal and is trying to talk to their dad. And all of a sudden you see him drop down and you're like, well, that's not going to feel good for the next, you know, hour or so for that child, because, like you said, he was trying to communicate with his dad about something and he had to take his ear pro off. And now he had to, you know, someone was shooting an unsuppressed two, two, three or whatever with a compensator. Cause we, you know, we all love our compensators right, and, right. and the sonic blast those create. So yeah, I just thought the more and more I've, I've shot with my suppressors, the more I'm just like, I, I think it's so silly that we have to, uh, not allow people the access to gain these. Cause it's just silly. It's a, it's a tube. It's a tube of metal and has, has, has to have a serial number. Like, I don't, I don't get where, like, I, I understand why the movies made it so difficult to get. Assassins use these. You, when you put a suppressor on, you can't tell where the shot came from. No, I can. It's still very loud. Trust me. <laughs> like, yeah, it's still happening. I, uh, yeah, man, it's, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, it's just so common sense that like you would use one. And, and like, you know, the thing that I would say is like, if you're on the fence about getting one, like, and, and if you're, you know, able to, like, if, if you're, you know, fully able to purchase one, everything will go through, um, do it, like get, get one. Um, don't wait around for it to change. Um, you know, the more things that more of these that we get out to responsible, you know, firearms owners and responsible citizens, like the better, because that makes it more of a common use item. Right. And that's, yeah. that's some of the things that in the past, you know, when you look at, certain gun legislation that hasn't gone through where they're trying to regulate items. They look at certain things and, and, you know, the fact that certain things that they've tried to ban or regulate have been common, you know, in common use, like, like AR-15 with how many people have AR-15s. Like they look at that and they're like, no, that's a pretty normal item. Like there's millions mm -hmm. of people that have them. Like, let's do that with suppressors, right? Where it's like, it, you want to make it so that it's normalized 
and and it is and like like when we take people who never shoot guns and we take them to events and and they shoot a gun with a suppressor on it they're like yeah that that should be normal like you still have to wear earplugs right in a lot of cases mm-hmm. with some of the bigger center fires like yeah you still want to wear earplugs yep it just takes away that that big concussive explosion like that blast of gas hitting you in the face that's that's one of the most intimidating things for people who aren't used to shooting firearms. So let's take that away. And I've had, I've had many people who have shot and been like, Oh, that wasn't, that wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be because, you know, we take away like one of the things that makes it the most unpleasant. Yep. Absolutely. And now is, is it true? Um, I, I thought, I can't remember where I heard this, but like over overseas, a suppressor is just kind of like a firearm. Like it's it's way more accessible to get a suppressor um, than it is over here. I'm gonna I'm gonna go on record as saying I don't have personal experience with that, but I've probably heard uh, many hundreds of people tell a similar story where you know whether whether it be in Europe or South Africa or you know in, in other countries, you know a, a suppressor is like in many cases, an over-the-counter item versus a firearm, which over there, some of the firearm stuff takes longer, um, mm-hmm. gain permits and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, like in, in my mind, like I have already done the appropriate paperwork to buy a firearm. Like why am I waiting for this? Yeah, I, I can walk out of the gun store with a firearm the same day, but the accessory, I mean, imagine if it was like, oh, you'd like to buy an, an extra magazine. Okay, here's some paperwork. We'll we'll let you know when you can come pick it up. And then you wait nine months to go get an extra magazine. It's kind of how I see a suppressor being. It's like all, all it is is another accessory that you can put on the firearm. Right. You know, weapon-mounted light, here's your paperwork. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, what are we doing here? This is so, so silly. Not... But, it does not seem right. Yeah, no, silly. So for those of you like like and I, I agree with him on that mindset. Look, if if you have even if you've never considered a suppressor as an option, like you never you're like I, I don't have any reason for one or anything like that. Trust me. It's not it's not necessarily that you might need a reason to own one, but you can make the shooting experience way more enjoyable, not just for yourself, but for those around you. As he said, I agree too with, with children. A lot of the times, like when you're teaching them firearm safety and stuff like that, or teaching them how to shoot for the first time, the recoil is obviously, I think, the first thing that most kids are afraid of. And then the second thing is the sound. It, it is just a very loud, obnoxious sound. So you take, the, you take one of those things away. Again, you can communicate with your child a whole lot easier because you don't have to have everyone wearing four different sets of hearing pro and you don't have to be screaming at them or anything like that. Um, and then you just take it adds extra weight to the gun. So the recoil actually is felt a little bit less for a child because there's yeah. there's more behind, you know, whatever. And um, Dude, for hunting, too. I mean, like for hunting, think like I can't even tell you how many times I've shot, whether it be waterfowl hunting, upland game, big game, small game, like how many times I've shot without a suppressor and like your ears are ringing forever. And like, it's just so much nicer because you can leave the earplugs out while you're out in the field. And then that shot doesn't disturb everybody else hunting the property, everybody else on the neighboring property. Uh, it doesn't spook the game as much. Like with all, all the new hunters, like a lot more people are going out onto public land. And like, I think one of the coolest things 
about hunting a, with a suppressor is like when you go out on the public land, you're not necessarily wrecking the other guy's hunt on the other side of the property. So like it allows people to share like that public land hunting experience without like there was a rifle shot. Ah, I guess I might as well get out of my stand because I'm done for the day. It's like, no, in most cases, like the deer, the other deer watching just pick their head up and look and go like, oh, okay. Anyways. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's like I've elk hunted with a suppressor. Like I can tell you that that experience was awesome. Like um, deer hunted, like I've done deer hunting in urban areas, doing depredation stuff, like taking, taking out animals that, you know, are maybe causing, uh, you know, crop damage, like the people in the houses all around, like they didn't, they didn't, you know, they weren't disturbed and they were all on board with it too. Like, you know, just so, just so you know, like just for the sake of the record, um, it was in an area where all the landowners had signed off on this and it was either going to be the DNR going out and doing it or, or hunters. And so we went out and did it and like, it was great. And it wouldn't have been possible without suppressors. It would have been possible, but not nearly as effective for the landowners that were trying to get rid of some of these these animals. Yeah, because I have seen yeah a lot of a lot of times when when those kind of hunts come up, it, it's almost exclusively for bow and crossbow hunters because of the you know the factor they don't necessarily yeah. want bolts flying or the noise and all that kind of stuff. So they want archers to to be doing it. But yeah, if you can if you can use a suppressor to help make make your neighbors' lives better by not constantly having them boom what the hell was that oh god they shot another deer and it's like oh god no um look it's not it's not difficult to get a suppressor it's it's a little daunting the first time you do it with with the whole process of learning but once you get it figured out you're like oh dude that was way easier than i thought it i made it i made it out to be way more especially if you can get access to a silencer shop kiosk or silencer central like those two processes make it even way easier. And it's not that complicated to start just a standard form to get a suppressor. But if you go through either of those two places, it is like walk in, pick your suppressor, log in, fill the form out, check out and pay, and then wait for Christmas. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the biggest thing for me was the fingerprinting. I was like, I don't know where the hell to get my, where am I supposed to get fingerprinted? Like, right. oh, I got to go to the police station and wait three hours just to get my fingerprint card done. Yeah, that's, that's definitely something I can do. Nope. With the, with the science shop kiosk, I went there and I did it myself. They give you the instructions, they do it, they verify it. All, I mean, it was, like you said, it was very, very painless. I made it out to be way worse than I thought. Right. It was exactly. And a lot of times, like I've, I've joked around with friends and relatives that are like, yeah, one of those one of these days I'm I'm like you've said this for 5 years you could have like a suppressor every year. <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. And I and I'll say this too like even with the e-forms like I know don't don't believe the 90-day approval cuz that's not true. But I have gotten my suppressors using the e-forms faster than people that are still waiting for the paper form that they submitted before the e-forms came out. So right. while it's still a joke of a wait time it's not as big of a joke <laughs> as the paper ones could have been. So, um, get a suppressor. That's what that's what Ruben and I are telling you. Let's get there a suppressor. Just do it. Just do it. Okay. We're all we're all going to be better people and better off when you have suppressors. <laughs> so, right on, man. Well, we're coming up to an hour and a half, and uh, I like to I like to end my podcast just with a couple fast fire questions, just for fun. Um, 
So if you're good to go, let me ask you this. If you had to pick, would you pick pancakes or waffles? Uh, waffles. Okay. Uh, would you pick a big, juicy burger or a steak? Uh, steak. Okay. Uh, would you rather cook on a barbecue or cook in a smoker? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, probably, probably a barbecue. Really? Sounds man. I, I have so much fun with my smoker nowadays. I do too. Maybe uh, maybe it's just because that's all I've been doing lately is smoker. Maybe that that could be it. I, I find a nice balance. I'll like smoke two things, and then I'll barbecue three or four things, and then I'll smoke another two things. And yeah. All right. Would you rather have the ability to go fishing all year or hunt a third of the year? I mean, I kind of have that, like, you can fish pretty much year-round in the Midwest, and then hunting is kind of about, like, that same time frame in the fall. Uh, I don't know. Like, if I look at it, like, I grew up. You can only pick one. You can only pick one. You can either go fishing all year or you can only do hunting. Which one would you pick? Uh, fishing. Fishing, really? Yeah. What's your favorite fish to catch so far? Uh, I go in like spurts, man. It's always different. It's like uh, I've, the last probably five years of uh, probably fishing more on the Great Lakes, like Michigan, Lake Superior, um, for you know salmon, lake trout, stuff like that. That's been kind of. I grew up fishing walleyes and, and panfish in the mid in the Midwest, and so. Um, moving to Wisconsin about 10 years ago and having like these inland seas where you can just go catch like giant trout and salmon has been awesome. So I'm kind of on that kick right now. Nice. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm still having a blast catching bass cause I, I never caught big mouth bass up until I moved here to Missouri. So now that I can, I'm like, Oh my gosh, these fish are so much fun to catch. We big actually blast. Yeah. Yeah, we went out. We went out fishing with. Uh, we took Nomi for the first time. Tried to see if she could cast, and like her pole was giving her issues, so she couldn't even get the bait out there. But Kelly, Kelly took her her little princess, you know, like pole from Walmart, threw it out. Didn't like it, so she was reeling it in. And then as she was reeling it in, this big mouth bass caught on. She's like, "Oh my gosh, I caught one!" So we, Nomi <laughs> got to touch her first fish, and she was like, "I want to touch. I want to pet a fish. I want to pet a fish." And then as soon as she touched it, she was like. It's snotty. (laughs) That's not snot. It's it's just wet. But um, all right. And last one for you would be uh, Disney or Universal for an amusement park. Which one would you go to? Never been to Disney. Been to Universal. Uh, It was a good time. So I'd probably say Universal. Hold on. Hold on. You've never been to Disney. No. Not land or world ever. Never. Bro, and you got kids? I got kids, man. <laughs> and you haven't still haven't got it. All right, you're gonna have to change that up. You got to go to Disney. Got to go to Disney. You got well. More importantly, you got to take the kids to go see Disney. Because yeah, so I'm gonna say this. <clears throat> Everybody who goes to Disney is not a good PR person for going to Disney. They come back and they talk about how expensive the food was and they talk about how long you wait in line and they talk about how expensive the lodging was. So like, yeah, I mean, people need to do a better job of advertising for their Disney trips when they come back and maybe I'll think about it. (laughs) Well, you know, I I feel like that's just people just trying to brag about how much money they spent. But I'll say this. um, Kelly has gotten (laughs) she's done it for years. The Disney World experience 
apparently, while it, it kind of seems like there's a lot of money up front, when you do look at it in the long run, it actually pays off. She she talks about the meal plan that they have at Disney World, mm. where it's like, it, I, I don't even know. I'm, I'm just throwing numbers out here, for example. I think it was like $120 for the day per person. But it was like that covered whatever you wanted all day long. So you just basically walked into a place, showed them your meal plan, and then you could pick all the things that you wanted. So she would say that, like, you know, she'd go with her with her nephew and whatever. They'd go. And by the end of the day, um, they collectively ate, like, $800 worth of food, mm-hmm. but it only cost them 300 bucks, right? you know, to do. So, so they do have meal plans and stuff like that. As far as, yeah, lodging, no. Like, the people that want to stay on the resort, okay, that's, that's stupid. Like, just... Take a ten minute shuttle, okay? Right. Save yourself a couple of I guarantee it's it's a, so maybe we'll have to talk and discuss how we can yeah, make your Disney not, adventure. Let's not offline on that one. <laughs> so right on, man. Well, at this point I like to just kind of hand the microphone over and give you a chance to talk to whoever it is that you need to talk to. If you got sponsors you want to talk to or specific individuals you want to say thank you to or anything like that, then uh, the floor is yours, my friend. No, thanks for having me on. It's it's great catching up and uh, talking about you know some of the some of the shooting stuff and talking about life and I mean it's always been fun hanging out with you on the range and getting to see you as a shooter progress and do different things and and you know get into this career and uh, that you're in now and obviously with the podcast is going super well so it's been been fun to watch that um, you know for me like. I, I think the biggest thing is like, thank my family, thank, you know, the, the job that I've got, like for providing me with the opportunity to be gone all the time and do this stuff. Like, um, my wife's an absolute saint, like putting up with me traveling and, and being gone for some of the things I do. And so obviously huge, huge thanks to that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess just like a huge thanks to all the people who support Vortex. I mean, that's, uh, that's very humbling, uh, being, being in this role and getting to travel around the country and, and run into people who use our products and who support Vortex. So huge thanks to all of those folks. And then, uh, to, to all my friends that I shoot with and, and industry people, I know thanks for making great products and, uh, for being great people. Right on. Well, with that being said, uh, again, that was Ruben Oxen with Vortex Optics. But um, if you guys ever get a chance to to see Ruben on the range or anything like that, don't be afraid to go up and say hi. Honestly, he's a very, very nice dude. Um, he loves talking to people, uh, loves sharing experiences, ticks, techniques, I mean, all that kind of stuff. So it doesn't have to be just Vortex Optics exclusive. He's got a lot of stuff to say. <laughs> but uh, And a lot of good things to say about those things. But um, be sure to check him out. Advice. There we go. So with that being said, guys, thank you so much for tuning in on this podcast. This was Open Action with John McLean, brought to you by Arms Corps Ammunition. And I will catch you on the next episode. See you later.